All right, we're in Mark chapter 5 this evening. Hopefully you're able to get a... Get a handout on your way in. This up here. One second. Mark chapter 5, we'll be looking at uh, the entire uh, chapter this evening. So, continuing on in the, in the Gospel of Mark here. Just one, uh, one other, yeah, does anybody need a handout? I think everybody got them. We good? Jeremy, thank you. Everybody good? Okay, awesome. Um, one other, I guess, real quick note as uh, as far as things that are coming up, of course, we, uh, we had a wonderful conference yesterday, uh, Rooted and Grounded, Steadfast and Secure co- Teen Conference here, hosted by uh, the BJU uh, ministry team, which was awesome. They did a fantastic job, really, really enjoyed that, and um, had a good crew here, teens from a number of different churches in the area, and of course from our church as well. But um, we also have Alcatraz coming up, and I know I've mentioned this, uh, we've mentioned a few times but um, Alcatraz is, our, is really our biggest outreach event of the year. I'm still forming my list of people who are available to help that night. It's May 13th. So if you're here and able to be here, or if you're able to be here, uh, sun, uh, Friday night, May 13th, that would be tremendous. We need a, a good number of hands on deck. It takes about 20, 25 people to, to make that work. And in contrast with the event yesterday that didn't really require anything uh, from our folks here, because they came and run, ran the whole thing, um, we need everybody, so we, we, we can use as much help as possible that night with food and timers and registration, all that, all that good stuff. So uh, would, if you are able to help that night, if you can shoot me a text or an email or something and let me know. All right, we are in Mark chapter 5, and um, again, we're, we're going to be covering, I'm going to read, uh, covering the whole chapter tonight, but I'm going to read the first uh, few verses, kind of get us started in this narrative, and then we'll uh, pray together. But Mark chapter 5, Then they came to the other side of the sea, and they, they there is, of course, Jesus and his disciples. They've just come off of a, uh, a really tumultuous time on the Sea of Galilee. Okay, we, we, we looked at this a number of weeks ago, but Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to make reference, actually, to that tonight. But they're now coming to the other side of the sea. Again, that is the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes, which is on the southeastern uh, portion of the Sea of Galilee. When he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broke in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. So this guy, he's out of control. Nobody can keep him under control. The chains can't even keep him under control. He's, he breaks through the chains. And always, verse 5, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, I beg you by God, that you do not torment me. Now, I want you to think for a second here as we're reading this narrative. This man here, he is possessed by hundreds, if not thousands of demons, as we're going to find here in just a moment. He comes to Jesus in verse 6. As soon as they come to shore in this area, again on the southeastern portion uh, side of the Sea of Galilee, he comes and finds Jesus. He worships Jesus, it says in verse 6. That word has the idea of falling on his knees before Jesus. And it's really hard to kind of keep straight here 
who's acting and doing and saying what. And I want us to think about this for a second. As I'm reading this, he says, what have I to do with you, Jesus? Who's talking there? Is that the man or is that the demons? That's the demons. Okay, think about this as we read. What have I to do with you, Jesus? The demons, they recognized Jesus. They immediately knew who he was. They were familiar with him. Son of the Most High God, I implore you, I am begging you that you do not torment me. They were aware of the power that Jesus had over them. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? That is Jesus. He asked the man, the demoniac, What is your name? And he really, he's speaking, Jesus again, he's speaking to the demons here. He answered the demons, they answered, and he said, and they said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he, that is Jesus, would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding as pigs, feeding near the, uh, there near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. He doesn't command them, but he does allow them. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Father, we do pray that you would meet with us tonight. I pray that the words that I say would not be my words, but they would be your word. I pray that I would not get in the way of what you'd have for us this evening. I pray you'd bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. William Ernest Henley, in his famous poem, Invictus, that maybe you don't recognize the title, maybe you do, but you will recognize some of the words here. He says this, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, this is the first stanza of his poem, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Whatever gods may be, I thank them for my unconquerable soul. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then this notorious final stanza. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. And while Henley's words may be inspiring, I don't think I have to tell you that it's a bunch of baloney. It's hogwash. That's not a very biblical way of thinking, is it? I mean, we may want and like to think of ourselves as being the master of our fate. And of course, we could argue for, to some degree that we, you know, the amount of hard work and diligence and, and the amount of righteous living that we do certainly will, it will influence the amount of success that we have. But we must recognize, we have to know, I mean, if you've lived any, any time on this earth, you have to know that you're really not the master of your fate. All of us have had things that have happened to us that are outside of our control. And we really, not only must we recognize that, but we must, we must rest in that. 
Rest in the fact that, that we are not the master of our fate, that we do not control our own destiny, that we may rest in the fact that we actually are almost, you could say, powerless. And that's our, our problem, right? Uh, that even though we often think that, oh, I can, I can do whatever I want. I control myself. I, I, you know, if I want to work hard and accomplish something, then I can do it. I control my destiny. But at the end of the day, we're ultimately powerless. But despite the fact that we are powerless, Jesus' power extends to every single area of our life. There is absolutely nothing when it comes to your life and mine that is outside of his control. Every single part of your life is under God's control. He touches it all. And I think that that is part of the, the picture that Mark is actually painting for us in this passage. Um, we're really getting a full picture of the authority of the Messiah here tonight. You'll notice on your handout that the first point that's listed is actually from chapter 4. It's actually a section of Scripture that we looked at last time. It's not from our text tonight. In that, in that in that section of Scripture where Jesus calms the storm, he demonstrates that he has authority, that he has power over the natural world. That is the nature that is all around us. That Jesus' authority, he, he is not limited when it comes to the natural world. That he, he was able to, with a word, calm the storm on the Sea of Galilee that the, that the disciples were stuck in the middle of. Jesus calms the storms. He, he, he controls the waves. He controls the, the wind and the trees and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. There's not a speck of this earth that is not under his absolute 100% authority. He made it all, and he is over it all. The disciples had a front row seat to that very truth, that all of it, everything, was under his authority. That, and, and, and it's impossible for us, I think, to, to really picture that scene. I mean, the disciples being out in the middle of a storm, the storm is, is raging on. They are fearing for their lives, and Jesus comes out and says, be still. And, and with his word, something that no man had ever done before to speak and to calm a storm like that, it's, it's almost unfathomable. And they had a front row seat to that. And now they've come to, the, again, the other side of the sea, the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, and now they're going to see that Jesus not only has authority over the natural world, he also has authority over the spiritual world, which is what he's demonstrated for us here with the demoniac. Demoniac is healed. He is cleansed, you could say. He comes to the country, it says in verse 1, we've already read this, comes to the other, uh, other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. And there's, I put a map up here for you. This is the Sea of Galilee, okay? And as we've said, um, Jesus has spent the majority of his time up to this point in his ministry in the area of Galilee, and specifically the area probably of Capernaum, which is on the northwest or northern side of the Sea of Galilee, as you see there and the top uh, of the map. But with the area of Gadara here, and there's some debate as to exactly where this is, but we can pretty safely assume that from, especially from later in the chapter, he's going to mention the area of the Decapolis, which is just a kind of loosely connected uh, part of, uh, loosely connected 10 cities that were down here. I've got it noted there as well in the Decapolis area there. You can see that again 
um, on the southeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. There's 10 cities, 10 primarily Gentile cities that are in this region that are all uh, that have been liberated from Roman rule, and they're all kind of loosely connected, and they're referred to as the Decapolis, which makes sense, right? Because the Decapolis literally means 10 cities, right? Okay, and so the, this region that is referenced, and so we can safely assume that the area of Gadara is right in that general area. And that's where Jesus is, okay? He's, they've crossed the Sea of Galilee, in, and in the storm, they've, they've had some issues in the middle of the sea, and now they've come to the other side to the region of the, of the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes, depending on what your, your translation says. In verse 3, it says that no one could bind him. Um, there was, they had tried. There was chains they had used, and this guy was just absolutely wrecked with, with spiritual forces of darkness, so much so that they could not even hold him down with chains. He would just break them. No one had power over this guy. No one could subdue him. No one could control him. He was absolutely uncontrollable. And he wasn't just uh, trying to, um, he wasn't just acting crazy and running around and things. He was actually trying to hurt himself. Verse 5 says that he was cutting himself with, with, with stones. Of course, the ultimate goal of a demon that's inhabiting a person is to do what? Is to destroy the person that, that they are inhabiting. One commentator said that even in life he was so he was even in life he was consigned to the land of the dead. It said that he went about the tombs that he he was not allowed. Of course, he had absolutely no place in the normal life in Palestine. He had no place in in normal culture. He was he was nuts. He was crazy. Verse nine, when he's asked about his name, he says that we are legion, for we are many. And um, this is a, a Roman military term. It was the largest unit of the Roman army, um, somewhere between 5,500 or even 6,000 men. It doesn't necessarily imply that there was 6,000 demons inhabiting this man, but it means that there was an awful lot. And it also is worth noting that when, the, when these demons exit this man, they go into how many pigs? 2,000 pigs, Okay. Number of demons here, a large number, just an absolutely remarkable number of demons. And this unholy exit, okay, we've read this. He, he, the, he, Jesus um, allows the demons, they beg Jesus, they know who he is, they know he has power over them, and they, and they beg Jesus, don't, don't uh, torment us. Can we please just go into the, the I mean, they knew he was going, he, he was about to remove them from this man. And they beg him, can we go into the pigs? And Jesus allows it. And, and this has presented a little bit of an ethical conundrum for some, right? For the sake of this one man, now these demons exit this man, they leave him, and they, uh, they, in, they indwell these 2,000 pigs. And as a result, what happens to the pigs? They all die, right? Um. You know, keep in mind, I think it's worth noting here that, that in Jewish circles, I mean, a, a, a Jew would not have thought anything about the pig, okay? A, Jew, a pig was an unclean animal. They would have, have it wouldn't have even occurred to them to ask or be concerned about the pig, okay, um, for, for, for what it's worth. Um, but in the Gentile region of the, of the Decapolis, that would not have been the case. And, and also keep in mind that the, the absolutely devastating economic impact 
that this would have happened. I mean, 2,000, I mean, can, we can't even, I can't even picture that, right? 2,000 pigs. I mean, that, that is a lot of pigs. That is a whole lot of money. That is a whole lot of economic impact that's going to, that's going to greatly just devastate the people in this region. It would have had a permanent impact on the economy in that region. And, and certainly to the owners of the pigs, but, but it doesn't even warrant a mention from, from Jesus here. It doesn't even, they don't, there's absolutely no comment. And I, I just think it's unbelievable to think about the, the value that Jesus placed on this one man's life, this one man's soul, this one man who, who, who was an outcast of society. He was the crazy guy that ran around in the tombs and in the hills. He was cutting himself, hurting himself. We tried to get him, we tried to get him under control. We can't do anything about him. Just let him be. He was, he was that guy. He was out there, and, and nobody could care less. And Jesus, for Jesus, he, the, the, the loss of 2,000 pigs and the economic impact and all the, the, the monetary things that went into that that we think about, it, it didn't matter. This man, his, his soul, his life was worth any loss. God loves and, and respects and appreciates and not respects, excuse me, God values human life that much and the soul of every individual. He, he would have done the exact same thing for every single one of us if we were the one that was out there and had lost our mind. We've done the exact same thing for you. Uh, it's just remarkable. Now, how do the people respond? Look at verse 14. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. They, they run away, and, and, they, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in, in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and, and about the swine, too. And they began to plead with him to depart from their region. The, the people who had been there feeding the pigs, they, of course, are, are, are floored by this. They're, they're taken aback, obviously. And this is, this is a really big deal, okay? And so they go and they, they tell everybody about it. And everybody comes out to see what all the commotion is and who, who done the, who's responsible for this, for this great loss. And they're astonished because when they come out, they see this guy who they knew to be absolutely out of his mind. He was, he was a complete nutcase, and he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind. We know from Luke's account uh, in Luke chapter 8 that this is a guy who generally he was not wearing clothes. Okay, He was running around uh, in the hills. It says a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. He ran around the tombs. That's what he did. And they come out and they, say, they see this guy and he's, now he's, he's clothed and in his right mind he's, he's thinking clearly. And they're floored by this. But they're also afraid. They're, they're fearful. And, and they beg Jesus to leave. And it's unclear exactly what it was that they were afraid of. Perhaps they were afraid of something else. You know, maybe Jesus, I mean, is he going to do this again? Again, the economic impact would have been huge. Perhaps they were afraid something else like that was going to happen. Perhaps, but, but, but it seems to be more of a, a superstitious fear than awe. It doesn't seem as if they're really all that like, uh, inspired by Jesus or they think it's, it's a marvelous thing that he's done and that he's, that he's redeemed this man, he saved this man. It seems more as if they have a, like a superstition thing going here. 
uh, not really in awe of, of his power, judging by the fact that they asked him uh, to leave. Um, but as Jesus is getting back into the boat to head to the Galilean side of the sea, and in marvelous contrast to the response of the people, we have the response of the demoniac. Uh, look with me in verse 18. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. As Jesus, these people, they come to Jesus, they say, we, we really need you to get out of here. And the people come to Jesus, and, as he's, and, and they say this, and so Jesus says, okay. And as, as he is getting into the boat to go back and head back to the Galilean side of the sea, the demoniac comes, the former demoniac, he comes and he approaches Jesus and he, and he asks him, hey, can, can, I, can I go with you? I, I want to be with you. For the first time in a long, long time, this guy is thinking clearly. And, and what does he want? He wants to be with Jesus. And when you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, when you've been walking and talking and fellowshipping with Jesus, he, he's, he's, going to, he's not going to leave you empty. In fact, he's going to leave you so full that you're just going to want more. He's going to be so fulfilling that you're just going to want more. He's going to leave you desiring to be with him. I'm guessing most of us have never been possessed by demons, but I can almost guarantee that all of us, at some point, we have all had moments where we can safely say, I am, I am not in my right mind. I am not thinking very clearly right now. And you know you've matured some when you get to the point where, where you can actually recognize that, right? You can say, you know what? I, I am not thinking in a very Christ-like way right now. I, I am not thinking in a very clear way. I am not, you, again, you could say, I am not in my right mind. Perhaps due to sickness, maybe lack of sleep, maybe exhaustion, whatever the case may be, but for, for whatever reason, you're, you're not thinking clearly. But perhaps a good indication when you're back to thinking clearly, perhaps you've gotten the rest you need, perhaps you are back to being well, a good indication would be that you want to be with Jesus, that you want to spend time with him. You know, that, that's clear thinking right there, that you want to spend time with Jesus Christ, that you want to fellowship with your Lord. That, that's a good indication that you're thinking real well. You're thinking clearly. And even in the moment, in those moments where you know, you, you think, I, I, you know, I know I'm not really thinking real clearly right now, but you know what? I, I really need to be with my God. I need to spend time with him. That'll help you start thinking clearly. This guy, he's thinking clearly for the first time in his life, and he wants to go with Jesus. He wants to spend time with Jesus. But what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, no, no. You, you, you need to stay here. This, Jesus was new in that area of the Decapolis. He hadn't been there much. And, and Jesus wanted him to stay there, and he says to him, tell them, he, put, he gives them a mission. Look at verse 19. Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. What does he tell the demoniac to do, the former demo, demoniac? He says, hey, go give them your testimony. Tell them, these people, they knew you. Your friends, your family, they knew, they knew you were nuts. And now you're in your right mind. Tell them what happened. 
Tell them that for the first time in your life, things are making sense. That for the first time, believer, life makes sense. That you have an answer to the, what, the longing of your soul. Tell them that. Tell them that you, act, that you found something that was what you were looking for in your entire life. You found a Savior. You found the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is true. Give it to them. Tell them what they need to know. He says, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. All of us have a testimony. That's our job, too. All of us need to tell the story of the grace of God in our lives and what he's done for us. So now Jesus crosses back over to the, to the other side of the sea, and again, we, we can pretty safely presume to the area in Capernaum, his, his home base. And he's immediately greeted on the other side by another great multitude. So in this final section of our narrative tonight, we're going to see that Jesus has authority not only over the natural world, not only over the spiritual world, but finally he has authority over the physical world as well. Look at verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. That is, Jairus did in verse 23, and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Here we have Jairus pleading with Jesus and Jesus heeding and going with him. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue, likely a Pharisee. He has an ill 12-year-old daughter who is laying at home quite ill. He says she is very close. to She's at the point of death. And actually, unbeknownst to him, while this man is with Jesus, this young lady would, this 12-year-old young lady would, in fact, die. So Jesus goes with him. And, and here we have another... Markin sandwich, as we have referred to it, and it's called intercalation, where Mark inserts, this happens several times throughout the book of Mark, but Mark will insert an, another narrative, another account of something else that happens that's, that's unrelated to the story that may or may not have happened in succession with the account that he's just described. Now, obviously, like, if this was a movie, this would be like a cliffhanger, right? This would be a place where the episode ends, and you say, okay, come back next week and find out what happens to Jairus' daughter. She's at the point of death. Jairus comes, and, and he's relieved because Jesus is willing to go with him, okay? But now we enter into a completely different account, another story entirely of this woman with the issue of blood. And so again, this is where Mark kind of inserts this related story. We'll notice a couple of things, both dealing with, um, both dealing with a woman. Both have some kind of issue or some kind of um, connection to the number 12. Okay, I'm not big on numbers, okay, but this young lady is 12 years old. How long had the woman had the issue of blood? 12 years. And so we can safely say that if these accounts happened back to back, which it does seem in this situation, these were not completely separate accounts. It seems as if while they were on their way, this woman comes to Jesus uh, as they are on their way to Jairus' house. So we can safely say that the entire time this young lady who was sick was alive, this woman had been dealing with this issue of blood. So he interrupts this narrative uh, and, and again, it sounds as very much as if this woman has come to Jesus while Jairus and he are on their way to attempt to save his very sick daughter. And so at this point, 
of course, Jairus, this ruler of the synagogue, this Pharisee, likely he's, he's relieved not only that he's found this one that he has heard so much about, this Jesus that he's heard that can actually heal, but, but he's actually, Jesus is actually coming with him. And so he's relieved and he knows, okay, hey, my daughter's going to be okay. Jesus is coming. He's going to make everything okay. He is going to heal my daughter. And just imagine the relief. But as they're making their way through the crowds to, on their way to Jairus' house, suddenly he's held up and Jesus says, somebody touched me. And can you imagine being Jairus at this point? I mean, what, what are you thinking? No, we're, we're on our way here, Jesus. We, we cannot, we don't, there is no time to spare, okay? She is very sick. He had already said, she is at the point of death. And, and they get caught up in the crowd, and of course, everywhere Jesus goes, there's going to be a lot of people following him. And so, and so as, as they're moving through these crowds, Jesus stops, and he says, somebody touched me. Who, who touched me? And, and just imagine being Jairus in this situation and, and thinking, okay, but we've got to keep going. We've, we've got to go. Don't, don't get caught up here. But Jesus is not troubled by this woman. Let's look at verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I may only touch his clothes, I, may, I shall be made well. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, we don't know exactly how this worked, but some way, one way or another, Jesus felt this was not an ordinary touch. Something had happened. There was, a, there was some kind of uh, power that had gone out of him, and he was able to sense that that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd, and said, Who touched my clothes? And from Luke's account, we know that all denied it. Everybody said, Was it me? I, <laughs> I didn't touch you, Jesus. His disciples, verse 31, said to him, Jesus, you, you see the multitude thronging around you, and you're asking who touched me? Okay, they're, they're being really, uh, frankly, they're being sarcastic with Jesus. Actually, again, we know from Luke's account that it was uh, Peter, <laughs> which probably comes as no surprise. Peter and, and the others, Jesus said, who touched me when all denied it, Peter, and, and those who were with him said, Master, the multitude throng and press you, and you say, who touched me? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. How, I mean, what, what, what kind of a silly question is that? Effectively is what Peter is saying. And he looked around, Jesus did, to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, verse back in, back in Mark, verse 33, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She says, it was, it was me. I was the one that touched you, Jesus. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman believed that she could actually just touch Jesus' garment, that he was so powerful that she would be healed of this plague, this, this issue that had, had afflicted her for 12 years. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's pause and understand the kind of life this woman in this culture would have had to live. It would have been terrible. Um, sick people in our culture today are 
taken care of and cared for. This woman um, would have been an outcast of society for 12 years. We won't take the time to look at it. I put the um, reference on your handout. Leviticus chapter 15 describes the purification process uh, for a woman in this kind of situation. This kind of sickness absolutely would have resulted in her being completely unable to live a normal life. For the last 12 years that she's been afflicted by this, and it's very unlikely that she would have lived much longer at this point. Um, She would have been considered unclean. She would have been unable to go into the temple, to the area of the temple that was designated for for women. As she's making her way through the crowd, she is risking uh, uh, making everyone around her, anyone she touches, would have become unclean. Anywhere she went, by Jewish law, she would have been required to announce that she was unclean. She would have been avoided. Again, she would have been an outcast of society. And so when Jesus senses that something has, has happened, he, again, asks this question, who touched me. And know what it, what it was exactly that, that made her well. It was not touching the garment. We think of that. We think, oh yeah, because she touched him, she was made well. No. Jesus says, daughter, your what? Verse 34. What has made you well? Your faith. The fact that you believed. That is what has made you well. And now we continue on in the story, and and Mark, again, resumes the other side of this narrative in verse 35. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And imagine Jairus' disappointment, thinking, Man, I I, I knew we had to get there, Jesus. If we wouldn't have gotten held up here, maybe she would have made it. And as soon as Jesus heard, and it's almost as if he overheard this going on, these words being spoken to Jairus. And as soon as he heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, of course, the inner circle of Christ, the brother of James. He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, verse 38, saw a tumult, those who wept and wailed loudly. Perhaps these would have been the, I think most of us are familiar with the, the hired mourners that would have been present in Jewish culture at this time. Um, it, some would say there wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have had enough time to even get there, but perhaps these were the hired mourners that were already assembling to, to weep and cry and wail loudly, as it says, verse 39. When he came in, he said to them, why? I make this commotion and weep. The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, obviously, Jesus is aware that, that she is dead, but he's speaking uh, in the sense that she is now, in a, in a biblical sense, as we often see that she's sleeping, perhaps. It's not as if he doesn't know, uh, but he's also aware that she will very quickly here rise, and she will not be dead anymore. Verse 40, they, they ridiculed him. I think some versions say they laughed him to scorn. When he had put them all outside, Jesus had, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. So he takes the mom and the dad and the inner circle, okay, James, Peter, James, and John. He takes the people that believe. He takes the people that are believing that, what he, uh, that, that he can do what he's about to do. 
And he puts everybody else outside, everybody else who's mocking him outside, and entered where the child was laying. He took the child by the hand, and he said, said to her, Talitha kumai, which is translated little girl, that's Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. He commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Notice in verse 36 again, Jesus says to Jairus, when they come and they tell him, your daughter is dead. Why bother this guy? Why why are you bothering the teacher anymore? It's, It's over. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, only believe. One commentator said that faith is the antidote to fear. I don't know if, uh, I don't know how many of you have ever been bitten by a snake. I I have not uh, that I'm aware of. I don't think I've ever been bitten by a snake. Um, But when you're bitten by a snake, poisonous snake, you need an antidote. You need something that's going to enter your body and counteract that poison that is in you and that will eventually kill you. And that antidote enters your body and, and it counteracts that poison and it saves your life and it interacts with the poison in your, in, in your bloodstream and, and, in so, and somehow it renders that poison completely ineffective. And in the same way as that antivenom works in, in your body, faith works in your soul. Fear is the poison, and faith is the antidote. Faith is the prescription. Faith is what counteracts the fear. Believe God. Notice that 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 is a consistent theme here. Only believe. At the beginning of this section of the narrative, back in verse 23, Jairus, when he comes to Jesus... He says, only lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. He believed. He trusted Jesus. Believing is how we're saved, and believing is how we live our Christian life as well. Ask yourself, I mean, do do I really believe God? Do I, do I really believe what he says in his word about, about me, about my life, that, that he is sovereign over me and my life, that he's in control of my life, of every aspect of my life? He controls the natural world. He controls the spiritual world. He controls the physical world. There's nothing outside of that, folks. It's all under his power. It's all under his authority. Do I believe what he says about that? Do I believe that he's really in control? Do I believe that he's really good? He says, do not fear, only believe. The title of our message tonight is Not Out of Reach. And what I mean by that is that there is no iota of your life. There is not a single part of your life that is outside of the reach of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that's out of his sight. There's nothing that's outside of his authority. There's no part of your life that he's going to miss. There's no part of that, oh, ooh, I 
forgot about that over there. It's not going to happen. Nothing's going to, to slip by his notice. I don't know about you, but I don't recall the last time that I calmed a sea, that I performed an exorcism, that I healed someone, or better yet, raised someone from the dead. It hasn't happened. But our Savior, he did all that in the span of only a day or so. His power extended to every possible area of, of, of these people's lives, and it extends to every possible area of your life as well. Your life, your family, your education, your health, your work, your future, your goals, the minutia of your day-to-day life, it's all under his authority and his power. I put Colossians chapter 1 on your handout. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And this is speaking of Christ. Okay? Paul, speaking of Jesus, he says, For by him... All things were created. Things that are in heaven, things that are on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That word consist has the idea of continuing. In, in him all things continue. It has the idea of enduring. It has the idea of existing. It has the idea of holding together. In him all things, in, in, in Jesus Christ, all things, everything that he created holds together. It continues, it endures, it exists by his power. Many times when, when, when things are crazy and life is chaotic, we have a phrase that we use. We say things like, I'm having a hard time holding it all together. You ever said that? I'm having a hard time keeping all the plates spinning. Can't, I can't seem to kind of keep it all together. I'm having a whole t- hard time holding it all together. You're not the one that's holding it all together. Uh, you never were. Even when you felt like you were, you were never the one that was holding it all together in the first place. He is the one who holds it all together. You may not be the captain of your fate or the master of your soul, but you know the one who is. Rest in that this week. There is no part of your life that is out of his reach. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and the rest that we can have in it. We thank you that there is nothing we experience, nothing we do, nothing that comes our way that is a surprise to you, that you are not sovereign and in control over. God, I pray we would rest in that this week. Lord, all of us have trials, difficulties that we face, I pray that through those, we would have our minds stayed on you, that we would recognize that there is nothing outside of your control. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.